listening to this sermon from Garden City Methodist Church. We want to invite you to worship with us each Sunday at 10.30 a.m., either in person or online. You can come to our beautiful sanctuary at 62 Varnado Avenue, Garden City, Georgia, or you can worship with us online as we stream our services at GardenCityUMC.com. We are continuing our series in Revelation today. This is going to be our next to last week. And we're going to talk about the millennium, which is one of the most controversial and argued about sections in the whole book. So I'm excited to get into it with you. So let's get into the scriptures this morning. We are in Revelation chapter 20. We're going to read the whole chapter. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand a key to the bottomless pit and a great chain. He seized the dragon, that ancient serpent, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years and threw him into the pit and locked and sealed it over him so that he would deceive the nations no more until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be let out for a little while. Then I saw the thrones and those seated on them were given authority to judge. I also saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for their testimony to Jesus and for the word of God. They had not worshipped the beast or its image and had not received its mark on their foreheads or their right hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy are those who shared in the first resurrection. Over these the second death has no power. But they will be priests of God and of Christ and they will reign with him a thousand years. When the thousand years are ended, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, in order to gather them for battle. They are as numerous as the sands of the sea. They marched up over the breadth of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints in the beloved city, and fire came down from heaven and consumed them. And the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur, where the beast and the false prophet were, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Then I saw a great white throne and the one who sat on it, and the earth and heaven fled from his presence, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Also another book was opened, the book of life, and the dead were judged according to their works, as recorded in the books. And the sea gave up the dead that were in it, death and Hades gave up the dead that were in them, and all were judged according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And anyone whose name was not found in the book of life was thrown into the lake of fire. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. A few years ago, Penn State University had a drinking problem on their campus. Uh, Every year, several students died from alcohol poisoning or from some dumb thing that they did as a result of being overly intoxicated. And the school knew that they had a drinking problem, but they just couldn't figure out how to fix it. Because every solution that they had to their problem brought up two or three more problems. So first they cracked down on drinking on campus. Well, kids just went off campus and drank off campus. So it didn't really work. They just moved the places that they were drinking. Second, they went on this great education uh, thing where they were trying to educate the students about about 
the appropriate amounts to drink. And, and they gave out these cups that said, you know, as long as you drink this much, you'll probably be okay. Well, you know what those kids did? They used those cups to play beer pong. And it did not work. They just ignored all the education. Then a student died. And they, they did this huge education thing about don't drink alone because the student was alone and they, they just drank themselves to death. And so the kids said, okay, yeah, we won't do that. We'll just go party with other people. It didn't really work. The only thing that really worked is that they increased the campus police presence on, on campus and in the areas surrounding campus and really cracked down on underage drinking. The problem with that is that when it came time for football season to come around and the alumni were tailgating, the campus police applied the same rules to the alumni that they applied to the kids, and the alumni wrote and complained and withheld their money. So even the solution that was working wasn't really working. Every time they tried to come up with a solution to this problem, a different problem cropped up. And the reason I talk about this is because I feel like when we try to interpret the passage of scripture that we just read about the millennium, the same thing happens. Every time you come up with a, a placement of this millennium, three more problems come up with it. So I'm going to give you kind of the most common interpretations of the millennium that we have, this thousand-year period which Christ is reigning with the saints on earth. And then I'm going to tell you what I think. And then we're going to talk about what it means for all of us. So the first theory about the millennium is called premillennialism. Okay, that's a $10 seminary word. But what it means is that Christ will come back again before the millennium, pre-millennialism. Millennial. Okay? And so they believe that there's going to be this, uh, this tribulation that we talked about several weeks ago when all this bad stuff happens on the earth. And then, and then Christ will come back. And then Christ will reign on earth for a thousand years. And then Christ will kind of take care of Satan once and for all. The problem with this is that it kind of doesn't make sense to me. I, there's just something that smells weird about it to me. Um, why would Christ come back only to sort of defeat the devil? Only to kind of hold him up for a thousand years? And then why are only some of the saints resurrected? I mean, it just doesn't, if we think about it as like a literal thousand years that takes place after Christ comes again, it kind of feels like Jesus is taking a half measure. And of course, the people say, why would God make God's people suffer through this horrible tribulation? And then that's where the rapture comes in. You'll notice we haven't talked about the rapture. If you've been here uh, every week during this, this series, that's because the rapture is not in the book of Revelation anywhere. The rapture comes from one of Paul's letters in Thessalonians, where he describes being caught up in the clouds with Christ. But it's not in the book of Revelation. And so Premillennialists like to kind of shoehorn the rapture in there somewhere in Revelation. So they say, 
the rapture happens so God's people don't have to have this tribulation happen to them. Then the tribulation happens and God kind of punishes the sinners in fallen Babylon. And then there's a thousand years where Satan's bound up and Christ is reigning. And then after that thousand years, then that, that God comes back for good and makes the new heaven and new earth. And I know that, that God's word isn't under any obligation to make sense to me. But it just doesn't make sense to me that God would come back, that Jesus would come back to bind Satan up and then have a thousand years of sort of reigning. It just, I don't know. There's something about that that just doesn't sit right with me. So that's premillennialism. The next one is called postmillennialism. And that is that Jesus will come back after the millennium so that there will be a thousand years during which Christ is reigning from heaven and earth is under Christ's reign, Satan is bound up, and things will be great on earth during that time. And then at the culmination of that time, Christ will return again and make everything exactly right after the final battle. But once again... When is that ever going to start? It, it, it kind of envisions this world that gets progressively better, progressively more Christ-like until this thousand years kicks in. And I just don't see the world heading in that direction on our own. Do you? <laughs> it doesn't feel like the world is getting progressively more Christ-like. It kind of feels like it's going in the opposite direction at times to me. And so um, I don't quite buy post-millennialism either. The third one is called amillennialism. And so this is what is, is the kind of interpretation in which people say this thousand years isn't a literal thousand years. It just stands for a long span of time. And it's a spiritual reality, not a literal reality. And so amillennialists believe that, that the millennium is a period of time between Christ's first coming and his second coming. That the millennium started when Christ rose from the dead and it's going to end when he comes again in glory. And that kind of everything in the book of Revelation is happening simultaneously. This tribulation where God is judging sinners is happening at the same time as the reign of Christ on earth. And that this, this glorious appearing, the second coming, is going to happen and then the judgment is going to happen and then Christ will create a new heaven and new earth. The problem of that, of course, is that isn't Satan supposed to be bound up to where he can't bother us anymore? Does it feel like Satan's bound up to you right now? Doesn't feel like that to me. And aren't there supposed to be resurrected martyrs reigning with Christ during this thousand years? I don't see any of them knocking around. And isn't Christ supposed to be reigning? Where is he? And so this idea that, that this thousand years are going on right now um, seems a little bit problematic <laughs> to me. And so those are the three main interpretations of this millennium. One is that Christ will come before the millennium and then reign on earth for a millennium. One is that this millennium will happen sometime in the future and at the end of that Christ will come back. And one is that the millennium is happening right now in a spiritual sense. But... Also, you got to wonder if that passes the smell test. All right. So every interpretation of the millennium that we have 
brings about its own set of problems, brings about its own questions that have to be answered. So now let's enter into Matt's opinion zone, okay? I try not to enter in this zone too often when I'm preaching. I like to preach what I find in the Bible and what the reputable scholars that I read say. I, I try to stay out of Matt's opinion zone as much as I can, but we, I feel like we can't avoid it this week. Here is how I interpret the millennium, okay? I believe, and in your mileage may vary, I, I'm not going to fight you about this. This is not something I think your salvation depends on or mine. But my opinion is that all millennialism, the third one, best describes the millennium. It's the one that makes the most sense to me in the context of the whole book of Revelation and the whole uh, witness of Scripture overall. So here is how I would fix those problems. Here, here is how I believe we can address those problems that, that sprung up. And, and it's really geeky. So I'm sorry about this. We have to talk about grammar for a second, and I'm, I'm really apologetic about that. But there is something in the Greek language called the subjunctive mood. And the subjunctive mood describes something that you're not sure about. It describes something that you uh, think might be true, but you're not sure. The subjunctive mood is actually all over this passage in a way that a lot of, a lot of translations don't translate. And so uh, this uncertainty is over here. For example, uh, when it says that Satan is bound up, it says, uh, let's see, where is it? In verse uh, 4, he says, uh, in verse 2, I'm sorry. He seized the dragon, the ancient serpent, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years and threw him into the pit and locked him and sealed it over him. My translation here says, so that he would not deceive the nations. But the best translation is, so that he might not deceive the nations. The subjunctive mood is what's used there. So Satan might not deceive the nations anymore, but if he might not, that means that he also might there's this uncertainty at play there. So Satan is bound up so that he might not, not uh, deceive the nations. And, and then he also says that whenever the thousand years is ended. Now, I don't know about you, but if you were to ask me, when is the thousand years going to end starting right now? I would tell you, the next thousand years is going to be up June 26, 3022. There's no uncertainty there. But there's certain certainty about whenever the thousand years is up. And so I believe that, that John was describing a long period of time. This is in the ancient world. They use a thousand years as like the longest period of time they can think of. So what he is describing is, is a very long period of time in which Satan is bound and conquered by Jesus so that he does not have the authority to mess with you anymore. But he still might, if you let him. He might not deceive the nations, but he also might. There is also the, the part where he is thrown alive into the lake of fire. He's still alive. He's still, he's still doing stuff. He just is stripped of his power because what, a, what Christ accomplished on the cross. And so what I believe is that this vision of Christ 
reigning in heaven that we talked about, the rider on the white horse a couple weeks ago, I believe that that is Revelation's language that described what Jesus did on the cross. And then this thousand years is this period in between the cross and the second coming where, where fallen Babylon is here. We are living as, as risen people in a fallen Babylon world. And then Jesus will come again to judge and to, to doom Satan once and for all in the later part of chapter 20. So this is an in-between time, and it's a long time, where we're serving our new Jerusalem king in a fallen Babylon world where Christ is reigning because he rose from the dead and he ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of God the Father. He's reigning over our world. He has bound Satan up. Satan doesn't have the power anymore, but we can give Satan that power by being disobedient. We can allow Satan to still lead us astray by being disobedient. I think we are watching the death throes of Satan in our world right now where he knows that he's beat, where he knows that he's conquered, where he knows that he's bound, but he is doing his darndest to take as many people and as many nations down with him while he still can. And I believe at the end of this long time, Jesus' reign will be complete and full, and he will judge Satan, and he'll throw him in where he'll die in that lake of fire. And then the dead will be judged, and then he will create a new heaven and a new earth. So that's my opinion zone. We're kind of going to exit this zone now. But I believe my, the, the best interpretation that I can come up with is amillennialism. It's the third one. Now, okay, we're out of Matt's opinion zone. No matter which one of these uh, interpretations you believe in, or even if you don't believe in any of them, and there's another interpretation you want to believe, that's okay with me. You're still my brother and sister in Christ. We can disagree on these interpretations all day long, and it doesn't bother me one bit. But here's why what we believe matters. Okay? Because there are some people who think you can believe whatever you want to about the end times. It's okay. But I think that what you believe about what Christ is going to do someday matters about how you live today. Think about it. If you think the world is just going to keep going, getting worse until it all goes to hell in a handbasket, then why in the world would you care about what's going on in the world? Why wouldn't you just keep yourself in your own little Christian bubble and say, the world out there can burn for as far as I care. I'm just going to hold out until the end, just me and Jesus and the people that think exactly like me. Right? If, if we believe that the whole world is going to the dogs, then our best bet is to get out of the world as much as we can until Jesus takes us away. But if we believe that we are put here to reign with Christ, that we could end up being on this earth for a long time, and that Christ has a job for us to do while we're here, that we are one of those that are called to reign with him in that first resurrection, that we are the saints that are called to resurrect because we are born again of the first resurrection, well, then we might be a little more careful. We might take a few more risks. We might get out there and evangelize a little bit more. 
Because we're not trying to offer people an escape route out of earth. We are trying to help Jesus reign in an earth where he is in control. I think we might be a little more hopeful and a little more victorious if we believed that Christ is on the throne and that he is reigning, that he has bound Satan on the cross and that Satan doesn't have the last word in our lives. That we don't, we're, not, we're not subject to what the devil has to say, but we are subject to Jesus Christ. I think we might be a little more victorious if we had that mindset. So no matter how you interpret this millennium, no matter how you interpret the end, we know these things to be true. We know that when Jesus Christ died on the cross and rose again, he put the death nail into Satan's tomb. Jesus' work on the cross did bind Satan, and Jesus is reigning as king. Read, flip over to Colossians 2.15 if you've got your Bible. If not, then I'm fixing to read it. Colossians 2.15 says, you know, it might have been a good thing if I had flipped over there in the beginning. Colossians 2.15 says that Jesus disarmed the rulers and authorities and made a public example of them, triumphing, triumphing over them in it. Therefore, do not let anyone condemn you in matters of food and drink or observing festivals. They are only a shadow of what is to come. Jesus triumphed on the cross. Jesus defeated Satan on the cross. And we're in that in-between period, in between that death knell and, and during the, the death throes of Satan. But one day he will come and he will finish the job. Are we living like it? Or are we living defeated as if we have nothing to do? As if Satan has already won? If we look around in our world today, there is so much division there's so much strife. There's so much fighting, and it wearies me out. Especially after this week, just seeing the division and the fighting, it just, it's so easy to feel defeated, and it's so easy to, to feel like there is no winning. It feels like you take one step forward and two steps back a lot of times. But Jesus is on the throne. It's so amazing that we serve a victorious God who loves us and wants to share that victory with us. So, no matter how you interpret these end times things, know that Jesus is on the throne. He's coming again. And he wants to share that victory with you. So let's start living like it. Let's go to God in prayer. Jesus, I thank you that you have given us your victory. You've shown us what it's like to defeat Satan. You've bound him. And God, whether there's a future thousand years or whether that thousand years is happening right now, we do know that your victory on the cross meant something. It meant victory over the devil. 
And so, God, I pray that you will help us to live victorious Christian lives. Not as if we're already defeated, but as if you have already won. Give us your grace today, Father. Show us who you are. Help us to live victorious Christian lives today. In your name I pray. Amen.